Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, this is Colin. And it kind of tis the season for books about, like, what really went wrong? Why are things so bad? There's a bunch of them out there. The one we're going to focus on today is a guest we've had before and a guy that we we admire tremendously, Kurt Anderson. He'll join us today uh, for a book called Evil Geniuses. His basic argument is that if you feel like America hasn't been making much progress and the general state of humankind in the USA is not being bettered all the time, it might be because a very small group of extremely wealthy and extremely powerful people, all of them men, decided to set the game up mainly to benefit them and hijack other possibilities. We'll tell you more after the news. is Randy Newman. Uh, I thought of him in this song, uh, reading Kurt Anderson's new book, uh, Evil Geniuses, The Unmasking of America, A Recent History. Uh, you might wonder, well, what would that have to, Evil Geniuses? It's such a nice song. But with Randy Newman, of course, you never know exactly which way he's running his thumb down the knife's edge of whatever statement he's making. So that could be a lovely evocation of, uh, of nostalgia for the past of 1903. Or it could be Randy Newman's uh, arch observation that things were really never that real nice day kind of thing that he's describing, only for a chosen few, perhaps. This is one of the questions that Kurt Anderson explores uh, in the new book. Not so much that, but the question of the power of nostalgia. Where does it direct us? Towards the end of this segment, you'll hear another Randy Newman song called Mikey's, where we can see how nostalgia turns very, very toxic. But enough of me. Kurt Anderson, welcome back. It's so exciting to have you here. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here, and I can't tell you how much I liked hearing the Randy Newman song as the lead into this conversation. Well, this is one of the one of the major themes of the book, right? The power of nostalgia, the way in which perhaps uh, anxiety about change directs us toward the past. But maybe the way to begin here is to talk about an aperçu that you had connected to this, which was uh, one where you suddenly realized that things weren't changing as fast as they typically do. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, it was uh, about 13 or 14 years ago in the 2000s. Uh, I happened to be reading the morning paper, the New York Times one day, and 
and came across this photograph from 21 years earlier of taken on the street in Manhattan, a portrait of, I don't know, 20 stylish young people uh, who worked at a restaurant, at, at a new boutique hotel, just as boutique hotels had been invented in the 1980s. And, and hey, I, instead of just glancing at it and moving on, I, I, I noticed that they didn't look in how they were groomed, their hair, their makeup, their clothes, anything about them, um, any different from 2007. And, and I got to think, thinking that how strange it was that unlike before in my lifetime, unlike before in the 20th century, unlike modern times, that, that such physical appearances and kind of material culture hadn't changed in more than two decades, which was just unprecedented. And so I, I was launched on a, on a kind of research project with no real purpose at that time to, to listen to music and watch films and television, look at graphic design and car design and industrial design and all these things. And, and, and I kind of, conf after this little epiphany, uh, confirmed that things hadn't changed. And, and, and then I began trying to figure out why that was so and why this weird stagnation stasis had occurred. And, and then sooner or later, that sort of intellectual tributary, tributary led or met up with this other one, this other question I had of how do we get so unfair in our economy since I was young as well. And uh, here they are together in, in this book. Right. So one of the questions you're basically asking is not simply about change or cultural change, but about progress. Right. You know, where is progress going? We think about progress as something that would propel pretty much everybody forward to some degree. Uh, life would pres presumably get better, get easier, get more modern. And, and one possible explanation is, yes, we were promised jetpacks. We didn't get them. But, <laughs> yeah. they, 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 but all that stuff just went into cyberspace that, you know, our virtual reality got better in the way that our physical reality maybe used to get better. But the other possibility the one that you explore is that maybe a bunch of people, a rather small group of extremely powerful men, decided it only really mattered if a, if their particular cabal uh, experienced progress. Maybe you can say a little more about that. Set the stage for the uh, the premise here. Yeah, and and the thing about cabals and conspiracies and confederacies, I, I had had grown up and come of age really. Th not believing in those, having being predisposed not to believe in those. And indeed, the last time we spoke about my book, Fantasyland, a lot of Fantasyland is about what I what I believe to be our American kind of overcrediting of conspiracies as as explanations for how things go wrong and go badly. So that that was one of the things that sort of blinded me at the time in the 1970s and 80s and 90s as I was growing up and then becoming an adult to this to this. Uh, sort of long war, this long game that um, ideological zealots of the economic right and and billionaires, and sometimes those were the same people, and and, and the CEOs of of large corporations got to well both in their in their own realms, and then together began this. At first, what I what I as I tell the story, what was an effort to prevent what 
seemed to be a possible socialist revolution around 1970 from from sweeping them away. Now that didn't happen and prob- and was not as 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 even plausible as it maybe seemed in those hysterical times to be happening. But that was first it. Let, let's protect ourselves. Let's protect free enterprise. Then when they started winning uh, during the 70s and certainly as the 70s turned to the 80s, they they thought, my gosh, we we only we didn't just just protect big business and the wealthy from being being uh, undone. Uh, we, we we went beyond that. Let's keep going, and and really, as I say, hijacked our economic system, which was, you know, a more Randy Newman esque New Deal, um, uh, a fair system, as well as being prosperous, creating this great middle class during the nineteen forties and fifties and sixties and seventies. And then they decided, no, let's let's rejigger it and re-engineer it just so that business can be more big business can get bigger and 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 it's more powerful and and that only the rich uh, will get richer. Now again, I, I I'm charitable. I don't think they necessarily set out to say only the rich will get richer, but that is indeed what happened because of the 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 uh, uh, sort of insatiable greed that that. Uh, began sort of setting the rules for how market values would would uh, overrule all other values in American society. This being, at least nominally, a democracy, you still ultimately have to have the consent of the governed for some of these kinds of changes, changes that may, in fact, work against their interests, uh, a la Thomas Frank and what's the matter with Kansas. One of the arguments I think that you're making is that the marketing of some of these ideas, or at least a set of ideas that would sit on top uh, of the substructure you just described, began very early. At one point, you describe a 30-minute Barry Goldwater commercial from 1964, which kind of sounds like the rhetoric of 2020 to us, an astonishing degree. On the streets, hoodlumism. destruction of private property. The false promise, the free ride of the fast deal. And the victims of the new America are not numbers, they're human beings. Illegitimate births swell the relief rolls. Juvenile delinquency becomes a way of life. The people ask why. They don't want this. The people look to the old dream of what it used to mean to be an American. Is this where the dream has gone? And sometimes, too often, it's the kids who pay. Blame them for a lack of morality? They read the papers, they see the examples at the top. They see the cancer of pornography festering. So other than the fact that we have a president who seems to have a very different kind of relationship with pornography and strip clubs and stuff like that <laughs> than, than prior Republican leaders, the rest of it, that kind of American carnage darkness, you cannot let this, this particular genie out of the bottle because this is what he'll do to our streets. It doesn't seem that different in 64 than it does now. No, I, when I came across that, I, I watched it over and over and over again and spent a lot of time in the book, obviously, talking about it. And I would encourage your listeners to go take a look. It's available easily in YouTube. Um, 
the thing about that, when when and ultimately the Goldwater campaign did not air that nationally. They bought national network time. They were going to run it on on network TV, and then at the end they pulled it back and just distributed it to conservative groups and Republican groups around the country to 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 show in their own basements and and clubhouses. Um, what was extraordinary about it to me is is it didn't work. Right, the, the 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 culture war was not ready to be started in 1964 when that film was made, even though it 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 absolutely struck all of the notes of the culture war ever since, and 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 sounds as you say not unlike uh, the the uh, Trump campaign um, highlights of 2020, um, but but but. None of that stuff had come to fruition. None of the, oh my gosh, what's happening to America? There were no hippies yet, right? There was, yes, there was civil rights, which certainly uh, uh, was was part of what, in its dog whistle way, that film was worried about and scared of. But there was not women's liberation to speak of. The, all there was not the 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 moral relativism of the '60s. The '60s, the late '60s, hadn't happened yet. So. So it was, you know, somebody was trying to start a cultural war where there was not enough general public uh, wherewithal or tinder to set a flame. So, but sure, soon enough, 68, 72, the other, the, as, as the late 60s unfolded and the 70s came along, there certainly was. And that became a central selling point of, in, in a public way, in a general political way to um, get voters uh, of the Republican Party and the right. Meanwhile, again, my story, the evil geniuses story, is is about these these non, non-emotional, not so scared of civil rights or women's liberation people, these these, these plutocrats and, and would-be plutocrats and 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 libertarians in charge saying, no, let's keep our eye on the prize of increasing wealth and power for the rich and powerful. And and but if we have to if we need to do this uh, culture. If we need to 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 also make people scared of what America is becoming and, and wage this culture war and uh, pander to bigotry, racism, and all those other terrible things that have been pandered to for these last fifty years, we will in order to achieve our economic goals. Now, you know, I lived through this, and I I just I I. <laughs> And and yes, if you'd asked me in 1985, are there are the Republicans uh, pandering to to racism and fear of gay people or women or, or or black people or whatever in order to achieve their goals? I would have said, yeah, I guess so. But but I didn't realize until looking back at it, sort of forensically, how 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 systematic it was. It it, it didn't seem as clear to me at the time as it began to in the 2000s. Right. So, you know, having followed your uh, your career, um, I, I know you to be a very trenchant uh, social critic. Uh, and and like me, I think you believe that it's a mistake to sever politics from culture, that um, one of them is a thermometer for the other. Uh, one of them, each of them can drive the other in certain directions. So one of the things that you've got to do and 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 we can sort of fast forward ten years from from Goldwater's commercial uh, to the the arrival of the Milton Friedman doctrine, uh, basically fifty years ago, having a big anniversary right now. You've got to kind of change 
the value set that is the flag that Americans will salute. You know, you've got to change it uh, from some of the ideas that you were just talking about. This, the ideas that we're all in this together. You know, we're uh, we're all people seeking the common good uh, of a country. To well, you've got to take a guy who was a villain and make him into a hero. And the guy that I have in mind and that you mentioned is this guy. Look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? Miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. <laughs> You're worth more dead than alive. Why don't you go to the riffraff you love so much and ask them to let you have 8000 You know why? Because they'd run you out of town on a rail. So whether it's uh, Scrooge in, in Christmas Carol or Mr. Potter, whom you hear there, and it's a wonderful life, it's clear that that's the wrong value set within the context of those stories. But one of the things that you, uh, Kurt Anderson, argue is that ultimately that value set got polished up, burnished up, and, and made way more acceptable, possibly fashionable, possibly even normative. Maybe you can say more about that. Yeah, I mean, and and certainly for some of uh, people in business, with through Milton Friedmanism as it became mass marketed in the late sixties and seventies, literally, yeah, Mr. Potter was was unfairly treated and unfairly depicted. He was just a businessman doing making the the choices in favor of maximum profit. So there was that, but more generally, it wasn't as though people. You know, Americans watch um, It's a Wonderful Life and think, yeah, Potter's a really good guy and, and George is really not. They, they didn't go that far. However, the, the, the idea that, uh, and, and speaking of Bedford Falls, Bedford Falls, the, the beautiful, wonderful American small town where people were neighborly and took care of each other and the little savings and loan uh, was, was fair and helped everybody prosper. Um, that was the 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 vision, the the myth, the idea that Reaganism, when Ronald Reagan was like a president in 1980, was selling. That oh, wasn't it better back in the old days? And this is coming off this decade of the 1970s, where where America had really, as never before, plunged into a kind of nostalgia wallow in pop culture and high culture and culture, and 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 so the the. The, the right and 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 the Reagan campaigners, as brilliant as they were, used that nostalgia and this this kind of embodiment of nostalgia in Ronald Reagan, who played war heroes and played cowboys and played sheriffs and played all these you know mythic American figures to to become elected and sell this vision of you know inevitably the old days become mythologized in any culture, in any country. And, and our American old days, oh, before the, the government was so big, when things just worked out okay in small towns and, and we didn't need the meddling big government and wasn't that great. So th that's what was sold. And, and, and the majorities, the landslide majority of Americans in 1984 who, who reelected Ronald Reagan weren't reading the fine print right. You know, they, like nobody... And nor was I really, uh, even though I read more fine print than other people. 
noticed that suddenly, um, well, the, the, certainly we all noticed that the tax rates on the rich had dropped in half, but all these hundreds of little rules and regulations of how the stock market would work and what if that, uh, that suddenly allowed corporations to buy their own stocks to pump up the price and how the minimum wage and overtime pay were being diminished. All these uh, uh, diff- changes was not were not a big change all at once like the New Deal. It was it was all these tiny underminings of what had been the New Deal consensus for forty or fifty years, and had the net result over the next decade, over the next generation, of of making all boats economically not rise together. One of the interesting arguments I think in the book is that to do things like this, you you can't simply do it with lobbyists and you can't simply do it with infusions of money into the political system, although that helps, that somehow or other you have to create a thought structure that goes along with it. So as you start to talk uh, uh, about the Koch brothers or Richard Mellon Scaife or uh, latterly uh, Rupert Murdoch, you're really talking about a bunch of people who were investing in thought. Uh, and I think it's very, very on point right now. Uh, this is a, a tragedy that you would have wanted to avert, but it does uh, open up a discussion point about your book. W- with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you really can see something that you write about, which is uh, that one part of the movement you're describing uh, started to build not just kind of an army of potential conservative justices, but kind of a way of creating that thought system at the level of law schools. Exactly. Well, and, and, and so many thought systems in terms of public media and, and otherwise. But yes, in terms of law schools and, and, and how lawyers and judges thought about the law and its premises in a way that would really encode deep as deep as it could be into our system, which is to say our legal system, of, of, of that economic efficiency is the overriding value above all other values, right? And, and, and uh, you know, as with so many things, I knew in a superficial way before I did the research for this book, I, I knew, okay, the Federalist Society, they became a big deal and, and, and allowed the right and conservatives to, to have, be more influential uh, in, in our legal system and in, in the understanding, as you say, the thought structures of the law. Well, I, I hadn't realized the details of that, and I hadn't known how how swiftly and 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 in such a kind of blitzkriegish way that had been done, and so so strategically. It, it that that there there for, there was a a, a memo, and there, this book is full of memos that weren't so secret, and certainly aren't now, but but are are breathtaking in in how how influential they were, and in in looking back at them now and seeing. Wow! Exactly what this guy uh, proposed to do in 1971 or 1980 is exactly what happened. There was this memo uh, commissioned uh, by the right-wing billionaire uh, Richard Mellon Scaife in 1979. Came out in 1980, basically setting out how the legal system and the the re- thinking about the law and its premises should be changed to serve big business and the rich. And and here's what we need to do, and here's how we need to recruit. In, in the top law schools rather than the middling law schools. Here's how we need to embed people in the judiciary and in the Justice Department and in U.S. attorneys' offices around the country and so forth and so on. And they did it. And with two years later, the Federalist Society existed. 
started in, in one of the three campuses where it started at the University of Chicago Law School with its faculty advisor Antonin Scalia. Um, and 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 within that decade, within the decade of the 80s, they had become successful, not least by uh, the work of another rich right-wing billionaire, John Olin, who, whose foundation gave 50 or $100 million to more than a half a dozen of the top law schools to create centers for this new version of the law with this unthreatening name called law, the law and economy, law and economics, which doesn't even sound like, a, like it has a point or is tendentious, but indeed it was this new right-wing um, economic uh, approach um, uh, aided by people like Robert Bork and all these people whose names we now know, but at the time were 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 sort of not not household names beyond the legal system. But with, again, within a decade, within a generation, um, the the understandings of these fundamental ideas, like about antitrust and whether American corporate power should be constrained and American corporate, both political and economic power, should have guardrails was were were overturned and and now of course something going on half of our federal judiciary and a majority of our supreme court are federalist society alumni that are are a result of this this change and 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 in the book i i i went back and saw how these these young people starting the federalist society in the mid-1980s it was only a couple of years old were were, were saying well in 20 years we're going to have this, we're going to have taken over the judiciary. We're going to have appellate court judges. We're, this is good, and it, which which sure, surely in 1984 and 85 and 86 sounded like hubris on the part of these young conservatives. But by gosh, as as another theater in in this long war, it was it was incredibly correct, uh, and 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 they did what they set out to do and dreamed of doing in the 1980s. We're talking to Kurt Anderson right now. We're going to grab a break here. Uh, the book is Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. Um, so we open the show with a kind of gilded and gilded age uh, Randy Newman song uh, about nostalgia for the past. We're going to go into a break. And I'm going to warn you, this will have some offensive words in it. This kind. This is Newman writing a few years later uh, and in his typical fashion, turning over a little bit more of the rock of nostalgia to see what's underneath it. Typically, if you can make people yearn for the past, you can make them object to people who are there in the present, who weren't there in the past. So here's a little bit of Mikey's as we go to break. point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. 
So uh, that, of course, is uh, Michael Douglas's uh, Gordon Gecko. Uh, so Kurt Anderson, uh, by the way, the book is Evil Genius is the Unmaking of America, uh, a recent history. So here's here's the kind of Mr. Potter uh, updated uh, mm-hmm. and cleaned up a, a little bit, a better clothes, smoother delivery that, you know, our, our culture is telling us, is having a conversation with us, but they're kind of moving one of the beads or all of the beads on the abacus in a certain direction too. Gecko is clearly kind of the villain of that piece, but there's something a little bit more Mephistophelian and tempting about him. Yes. Yeah, well, kind of a villain is right. Of course, he... he before the the golden age of television where every hero on a ca- every dramatic cable series was a bad guy who we loved uh Gordon Gecko was one of the original versions of that modern anti-hero. Yeah, sure, he went to jail because he uh, he got busted for inside trading, but he was the hero of that story, not uh you know the the ostensible heroes and victims. Um uh you know he, he, he and that scene where you know and and where, where he gives his greed is good speech and is wildly applauded by the shareholders of this paper company because they are feeling liberated 15, 16 years after the, the Friedman doctrine was published to feel righteous about their greed. That was what was new. And here was Oliver Stone in, in Wall Street depicting this roguish character, Gordon Gecko, as uh, as a hero, as as uh, you know, as as an American hero who was who was honest about greed being what it was all about, what America is all about, and and yeah, it was a critique of that, but it was also a celebration of that, and and uh, and I remember many people at the time, people I knew, people I was acquaintances of in the financial business, taking it as as a, you know, right on kind of creed accord, not the the ugly uh, thing that others may have taken the gecko speech to have been. Uh, and, and, and what's extraordinary about that movie, it was right in the middle of it. It wasn't a, a, a look back and, oh, let's look what happened. It was made in 1986, came out in 1987, right at the moment, this, this transition from, from, from one kind of America, from, from the Bedford Falls to Pottersville, but with, as you say, instead of mean, old, awful Mr. Potter, this sexy, young Gordon Gecko as the, as the front man. Right. So this is a good place, I think, maybe to, to bring this up to. One of the interesting sort of undercurrents in the book Evil Geniuses is, you know, maybe not self-flagellation on your part, but a self-interrogation. There's sort sure. of, in the words of Thomas Jefferson in the play Hamilton, what did I miss? Um, <laughs> there, you're sort of asking yourself that, that, you know, you've been, you've been at this for a really long time, going back to Spy Magazine, yeah. uh, certainly an observer of this rising class uh, of vulgarians, to use a spy term. But now you're asking yourself, did I... Did I fail to get something? What's the thing that you're, or the things that you're worried you didn't completely absorb as you were having a ringside seat at this whole thing? Well, my examination of this new culture in Spy and elsewhere, starting in the 1980s and through the 90s, was more about these Bulgarians, as you say, like Donald Trump and lesser known uh, movers and shakers and Wall Street types that in Spy Magazine, we we covered journalistically and ridiculed and, you know, the, the Mike Milkins of the world and all the rest. But I guess 
partly because I guess I failed to to notice sufficiently. I did fail to notice sufficiently all of the victims of this systemic change, right? I could look at my former boss, Henry Kravis, or the future president, Donald Trump, and all these people and, and, and depict them in the ways they deserve to be depicted as the mobilizers of this change or the symptoms of this change. But, but I didn't, you know, uh, because spy and my own sensibility tended to be more satirical than, at that point anyway, so sort of systematically sociological, if you will. I, I guess I didn't put all those together. And as a result, went along with the Democratic Party mainstream of new Democrats and neoliberals. And, you know, we, we can, we're all free marketers now and we can meet the right halfway here and fail to realize that halfway when the right is moving further and further and further right, that middle point where you meet and compromise also is moving further and further and further right. And moreover, I and the prosperous college-educated quarter or third of America in the 80s and 90s were doing okay. The the change in, in the basic American social contract didn't hurt us. In fact, probably it was, was good for us and me, which you know, had the effect, I think, of blunting my awareness of what was happening to the majority of Americans economically, which wasn't good. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, don't beat yourself up too much. I think we all missed this. I will just say that in the 1980s, famously, Grace Mirabella was driven out of Vogue magazine and Rupert Murdoch gave her a ton of money, like a ton of money to start her own magazine called Mirabella. I was a contributing editor and monthly columnist there for two years. I loved Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> I, yeah. I like. I bought a new car from Rupert with Rupert well, Murdoch's money. So, I mean, you know, like, we didn't ask a lot of questions. It was like, oh, well, Murdoch will give us, you know, pretty much an open checkbook to do this magazine. So great, I, I think. But, you know, I want to talk, I want to just jump on something you just said about r the right moving farther right, because it's not just that, right? It, once again, is the whole abacus shifting so that John Roberts is now a moderate, so that Barack Obama was a radical socialist, right. crypt, crypto Marxist. I mean, Barack Obama was a pro-business Democrat centrist. You know, you all you have to do is look at Tarpon era. You get kind of a sense of that. I mean, that's no knock on him. But right. the, the way that people are described, I mean, Mitt Romney is the new Jacob Javits or something. <laughs> There's, you well, know, and Jacob Javits, of course, being the famous liberal Republican, along with the governor of New York at the time, Nelson Rockefeller, those were liberal Republicans. And people forget, and I'd forgotten until I went back and did the research, that not only were, for instance, in the U.S. Senate in the 1980s still, Republicans were a small minority, but a third of that small minority were actual liberal Republicans, like Jacob Javits. And so very swiftly, however, after this, the evil geniuses revolution was successful, um, there ceased being liberal Republicans. They died out. You know, Lowell Weicker, senator from Connecticut, one of the last of them. They stopped existing. So, and what happened on economics is the Democrats, National Democrat, and the Democratic Party be, replaced, became the liberal Republicans. So there was there were right wing Republicans, there were liberal Republicans calling themselves Democrats on economics, and there was no economic left to speak of as of the late eighties, as or, or even earlier. So that's really in short form, but I think absolutely accurately, what happened is the, the Democratic Party, out of some, not just because they were bought off, although that too, but, but out of a kind of earnest liberal 
oh, yeah, let's not just reject things out of hand just because our Republican friends across the aisle are, are proposing this. It was There was some earnestness involved. But, you know, in the end, I would say those of us who I wasn't ever a professional Democrat, but I voted almost always Democratic, were played by, by in, in various ways by this economic right that never took their eye off their particular ball. So I just was told what the time is. This show is going way too fast. We, we, we need a second hour here. So there's a term in football called, uh, you don't hear so much anymore, it's called outkicking out your coverage, which means the, the punter punts the ball so far down the field that the people who are running down to tackle the person who's going to catch the ball can't catch up with it. And I kind of wonder if you're seeing any signs here that this conservative movement might have outkicked its coverage. One, one thing I thought of, because the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is mentioned so prominently in your book, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce this year is endorsing, I think, 23 incumbent and somewhat vulnerable Democratic members of Congress. So, but they're sort of saying, well, you know, on issues like trade and immigration and stuff, maybe the Democrats, possibly Kurt, because they're the new liberal Republicans, maybe the Democrats are kind of a little bit closer to what we want than what you guys are doing. So did the right punt the ball too far down the field is what I'm asking. Um, well, I think uh, in, in yes is the short answer, which is to say this this the the part of the rights coalition that are not about making the rich richer and big business more powerful, but about the other parts of what have become Republican ideology have become more and more important in that coalition and finally have their their president who who. I don't think cares about any of those things either of abortion or, well, he, I guess he cares about race and, and immigration in some visceral way. But yeah, I think all of those issues, all of those, those cultural issues um, are not really what these, my guys, my evil geniuses are, are about mainly that they, they are about their very specific things. And so when, when they, in order to get, uh, to politically pander or because it's Donald Trump's personal notion of, oh, trade, well, let's have a trade war, let's have tariffs, let's let's not have free trade, that then th that isn't really, that's off brand and off message in a very serious way. But on the other hand, he has a given abdicated, subcontracted choosing Supreme Court and other justices and other judges to the Federalist Society. So that's good as far as they're concerned. He has given them his great legislative, one great legislative achievement is the $2 trillion tax cut in 2017, almost all of whose uh, benefits went to big business and the rich. So that's good. So yeah, that they would rather, they, uh, I, you know, I'm talking as though there are 43 guys in a room and they're in some ways, there are. There's this thing called the business roundtable, who are those 43 guys or 200 guys in a room, would rather not have Donald Trump be their president. They would rather have Mitt Romney uh, uh, be their president, a, a respectable, clubbable guy who, who uh, you know, stayed within the norms of, of uh, you know, that, that Republicans had been. And, and, and so, yeah, this is problematic for them. And I think in a more general way, the, 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 to use your football, kicking it too far down the field metaphor, I, th I think 
some of them probably, if they're smart, are beginning to realize as a rich guy like Franklin Roosevelt realized in the 1930s that this, this capitalist unrestrained greed had just gotten out of control and was threatening the system. That the, their very golden goose of a, of a prosperous, uh, large, growing middle class to, to keep the whole system working um, is, is, is in danger and being jeopardized by the extremism of the of the hogs at the trough. And so, so that, that, that's, I mean, part of, to the degree I have hopefulness, part of my hope is that there are sensible uh, people who understand that our free market system that has been good, that used to be good for most of us and hasn't been good for most of us for 40 years um, is in danger because sooner or later, if you get so undemocratic, small d, um, and and so unfair, and people and 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 your children cannot rise up the economic ladder, and you can't afford college, and all the rest is not going to hold together. It's just not going to hold together, and 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 they will regret it, even though they have uh, assembled their millions and billions in the meantime, as as they were heading for the for the cliff. All right. We're talking to Kurt Anderson. Uh, the time is flying. Uh, that's always a good sign, but it's also a bad sign. The book is Evil Geniuses. We're going to take another break. We'll come back and we'll wrap up our conversation. money. It's made up. Pieces of paper with pictures on it so we don't have to kill each other just to get something to eat. It's not wrong. And it's certainly no different today than it's ever been. 1637, 29, 1937, 1974, 1987. There may be more of us today than there's ever been, but the percentages, they stay exactly the same. We are running out of time right now uh, to talk to Kurt Anderson, a co-founder of Spy Magazine, uh, the host and co-creator of the much-beloved Studio 360. Uh, he is, his newest book is Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. So um, maybe I can condense all this into one idea here. Uh, Kurt, you know, one of the things that I've been encountering, having written a column criticizing the people who kind of who criticize uh, basic public health, kind of highly warranted uh, proactive measures against uh, the pandemic. Um, a lot of them come back and go, yeah, but Sweden. And I've, 
<laughs> I finally have said, look, if you're the kind of person who's constantly denouncing socialism as a creeping yeah. evil that's about to destroy America, it's against the rules, I say, for you to invoke Sweden. Not only because Sweden's death rate is like way higher than its other Nordic neighbors, it didn't really do that great a job, but there's a way in which Sweden has an ideological infrastructure that's probably closer to America at the time of the New Deal than it certainly is to America in 2020. Say more. Yeah, well, and I talk a lot about the Nordic countries in this book, especially in one particular chapter where I, I, I compare the United States in all of these ways that our system is different and has become radically more different than the rest of the rich world, healthcare and otherwise. Um, and, and the thing about those countries, the thing about Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, all of them, is that they... For A, they are not socialist countries. They are incredibly free, free market systems that also have a big social welfare state and cheap or free education and all the rest that, that allow them to maintain their pr prosperity and citizen contentment. Now, all of those, but in, on, on the COVID pandemic, all of those but Sweden uh, had um, more aggressive public health intervention um, and, and, and as a result, uh, kept, has, have kept their sickness and death to a small fraction of that in the United States and in Sweden. So you had, you know, the, you could look at Scandinavia as a laboratory of democracy, to use Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis's phrase about big America, that this state could try this and this state could try this and this state could try this. And that's what you had in Sweden. And to my way of looking at it, um, you know, <laughs> I would have rather lived in Denmark than Sweden uh, the last six months, not just because my great grandparents came from Denmark. But, but you I know, think, it, yeah. they, they they did it better. Fewer people have died, and 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 yeah, life was more normal, and people went to restaurants more in in uh, Stockholm than they did in Copenhagen last spring. But I'll take Sweden. And anyway, uh, as 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 you're suggesting to those who say, but Sweden. Yeah, there were there were other countries. The UK, for instance, is another one, um, uh, along with Sweden, who who went about who approached this set of crises more like the United States did than other countries. But I would add that, as you as you also suggested, Sweden, like the rest of the Nordic world, and indeed like the rest of the rich world, has this incredibly robust social safety net about. Uh, you know, in, in, in the case of the pandemic, for instance, paying, making sure that people and certainly older people were had 80 percent of their salaries, even though they weren't working because it was the pandemic. So that's just one small example. But but they have this system whereby, in a sense, they were freer to attempt this laissez faire attitude toward the pandemic because it didn't mean uh death and destitution as as in in the way that it 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 does in the united states so um if you want to say but sweden let's let's engage there and let's talk about the scandinavian countries the the, the great free market systems uh of the scandinavian country there's a uh, as as people have said you know those are those are they they those capitalist countries are able to afford uh, uh, their, their socialism because they are capitalist countries and vice versa. They have this balance, right? That, that you know, we used to have something like from the New Deal until 1980 and then took this right turn 
uh, away from the way the rest of the developed world uh, was doing things. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about these countries is they're much less comfortable with disparities than we are. Uh, I talked, I remember talking, Finland has this incredibly successful, famously successful education system. I asked the Finnish, Finnish education minister about it. He said, well, we, first of all, we're just not that comfortable with some students failing. You know, right. I mean, uh, we see this more as moving the entire cohort forward. And I was thinking, well, we're so comfortable with disparities and unequal outcomes here. No wonder well, we have these problems. Well, Look, we've only got about three minutes or so left. And one of the things that you promise to do in the book and that you do is not simply to sing a song of, uh, of ice and fire and despair, but to uh, offer some way out. So I just give you the floor. Uh, talk about how we get out of this mess, Kurt Anderson. Well, I mean, step one, but only step one is is getting rid of this decadent <laughs> nation-destroying political party that we have in national office right now. But uh, one thing I, I... And to look around at how other countries that are prosperous and growing and by every measure, every measure, doing as well as the United States is, or better, how they do what they do better. And, 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 and begin and stop resorting and defaulting to the it's socialism it's socialism well yeah social security if social if universal health care socialism so was social security so is medicare so we're all so we're public schools right so stop get off those just dumb defaults to 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 binary political rhetoric also what i realized and i didn't start out writing evil geniuses to do this but i realized what what they did over the last 50 years those guys, this small elite of plutocrats and oligarchs and zealots, they fought this war and won it brilliantly on so many fronts and so many theaters and so many different kinds of campaigns really well. And in addition to be depressing and infuriating, I think this book is, is also a kind of, can be a kind of guidebook, instructive, even inspiring for how you change a system. The system was one way. The economic system was one way. They changed it in my lifetime, in a in a generation. It can be done again. And and there, there are lessons to be learned about keeping your eye on the ball, playing for the long game. Don't fight over tiny de- details uh, when you're fighting for the for the big prize, and and so on and so forth. So I am I am I mean, we we have taken the step away from the abyss, and we can rebuild. We can make America great again. There you go. That's a great way to end it. And we have to end it anyway. Uh, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History uh, by Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson, thanks again. Write another book and we can't wait for you to come back. Oh, it's just a pleasure. Just terrific. Thank you. 